minded even for me, I'm thinking through it even from what we we're talking about last week, just the the blessing of the church and seeing seeing baptism uh, being part of being part of a of a gathering and, and publicly professing Christ. What a what an exciting thing that what exciting it was tonight to see that and see these lives. So beautiful testimonies fits right into to what we're looking at with the with the church and the beauty of the church and really the, the desire to to be excited about what God has designed and, and, and God's plan for for this age, the church age, not only in, in light of evangelism, teaching, preaching and, and missions and the role of the church in that and just the beauty of, of seeing what God has has prepared for us. So last week we we looked at we've been looking at starting all the way back to the exclusive nature of God and just walking through that to arrive at the church and seeing the church in, in all its specifics uh, and how God has designed that the beauty of the church in spite of uh, its frailty in spite of all its apparent weaknesses to see the beauty of God's design in that and trusting Him in that last week we looked at the uh, how the church local visible is designed and structured to guard preserve, protect the truth, and desire is for us as believers to see how the church is designed and equipped to, to be guardians of the truth. We walked through First Timothy and even saw even through all the way through chapter 3, we talked about being the church, being the pillar of truth, and we see, God, uh, we see Paul's uh, hand that over to Timothy. He says, you know, here, guard this, uh, preserve it, protect it, teach it, and proclaim it. And so the, the beauty of that, and as you walk through this, what was inevitable to me as I walked through this is seeing you can't get away from the church and talk about missions. You can't get away from the church and talk about um, sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel. Last week we talked about how the congregation to the elders, to the significance of baptism, significance of the Lord's Supper, significance of church discipline, all that structure within the church to guard, preserve, equipping the church to uh, to guard the truth all the way through the apostolic mission, receiving, being a recipient of, of that mission. Today, we're going to see a, a, a chapter on, on what missions, why missions drifts, and it drifts when it drifts away from the church. And talk about last week, I made, I made a comment last week about some of these issues, some of these questions we're looking at are not, uh, they're not extreme issues, they're mainstream issues. Meaning the more you, you dig into missions, the more you see the mainstream problems. What's interesting to me is few people identify the why of the problem. I've, I've seen over and over issues in missions, and they don't, they don't equate it with distancing themselves from the church. And yet the, the lack of church presence in missions is exactly why some of these issues have popped up. So we're going to do two things this evening with the time that we have. First, look from a very practical point of view, the, how, how does the church preserve missions from drifting uh, and then the final section here is on the the proclamation how the church is unique design because second part first timothy three after exhorting uh paul giving to timothy hey guard the truth the, the church is the pillar of truth then structuring the body and how to defend the truth and guard it then he says in chapter four go now and and preach the truth and take it so we're we're uh, still a week behind we get caught up here somewhere so we're still on September 18th, so don't get confused. No, we are September 25th, uh, and we'll get the Great Commission mandate probably not till till next week. So I believe you should be on page 21 with me on preserving uh, the preserving from from drifting. The first thing I put down is just the historical drift. I put down a few authors here. A number of people have testified to why missions 
is drifting or why missions has drifted. And it's important in terms of history. You know, now if you're a young person, history is, you know, tw- six months ago is history. No, that's not history. Uh, <laughs> history is having a little more uh, view on, a 30,000 view on, on why trends have changed. And you have different authors. I mentioned a few of these here. Uh, but several authors sound the alarm, pointing to ministries that were once faithful to the Word of God, now find themselves uh, demoting truth. And first of all, I, I mentioned four here. One, Peter Greer. Peter Greer does a great job, and he, the footnotes give you the books, the references, if you want to look those up a little bit later on. Peter Greer does a great job given the history of Christian organizations that have drifted far but can no longer be considered Christian, or worse, they become apostate. Now, what I find interesting and a little bit disappointing, he does a great book that becomes a reference book for many people, but he mentions the church as the last chapter in his book. He talks about missions. He talks about having mission statements and, and boards and being accountable to this and that. Then right at the end of the book, he says, oh, and also to preserve from drifting is the church. And wow, I'm thinking, wow, the church would be front and center of your book to explain why these different organizations that were once uh, designed to, to spread the gospel and to the word drifted off to even at the, at the point where they're apostate ministries now. David Doran is a book that is used in, in TES. Uh, he, he follows early on in his book the, the history of the student volunteer movement. Founded in 1886 with uh, a little over 100 students, the desire was uh, for foreign missions. It was called the Student Volunteer Movement for Foreign Missions. They had a great zeal. And it's interesting, there, there also, I'm going to say there aussi, throw a little French word in there, see if you're alert, right? There also, that um, um, just the, they, they start out with great zeal. And many books are written and articles are written about them. Wow, how can we get back to that zeal? In other words, man, they were just on fire for the Lord, percentage of people that committed to missions, and they sent out thousands upon thousands, 20,000 in the first 50 years of an organization who does not exist anymore. But for the first 50 years, they sent out over 20,000 uh, young people on fire for the Lord for world missions. And David Doran in his book goes through some of this, uh, explaining what happened, why did they fade. And I put down here just a brief explanation. He says in his study... Uh, that after sending thousands of missionaries to the ends of the earth, they quickly fading out to existence. He points to a movement that lost its theological bearings and drifted towards adopting a pragmatic agenda, a shift of focus towards social gospel to adopting ecumenism. So it's interesting that he, he looks at their history. Why have they drifted? Why did they go? How did they go from organization on fire for the Lord, sending thousands overseas to, to now even non-existent, and he describes some of their shift away from, and of course, his, the book addresses the, the issue of the church in the matter as well. Lalos and Greenway, I've mentioned their, their book before. They give a, a great, st- and I'll mention them a couple more times in this chapter. They study the study of 1920, 1960s, the shift in the Southern Baptist Church design, the, the Southern Baptist Convention designed to world, forward evangelization. How did they drift away from uh, the task that was given to them? He describes it. Their approach, and they're Southern Baptists, saying that they've been progressively more pragmatic in their approach to missions, and they divorce, and here's his big key, they divorce missions and evangelism from sound doctrine, and doing doing so opened the door to spread progressive theology. So he said the moment that you separated theology from missions, you made those two separate entities, then missions automatically became pragmatic in nature, and they drifted away from sound theology to become progressive. The last one. Uh, mission here is uh, Bavink makes some of the same observations in his systematic study entitled Science of Missions. 
he observes that there is a great temptation to water down the gospel and make it culturally relevant. So the, the, historically, the church wants an organization or an entity as zealous as they might be. Once they separate themselves from that which was designed to anchor theology, to anchor truth, at some point they will shift. This is not what's abnormal. This is the norm. Um, so uh, just historically, the, the necessity to see the role of the body of Christ in, in these areas. So put down the drift in different areas, put down theological drift, which is obvious by what they're describing here, and to the point where put down that as amazing as it might seem today, mission organizations being seen see theology as separate from missions, even begin seeing theology as problematic or as theology as in, impeding the progress of missions. Now, Lawless in his book describes uh, the model or the mantra of some of these early conferences of the turn of the century, theology divides, service unites. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, how, how can you come to the point where you, you start out with a church organization for the purpose of the gospel now see theology as problematic. Theology is slowing us down. It's impeding progress, whereas service will unite us with theology divides us. So this would be a little bit less sensitive to theology and more focused on serving together. Um, another one is that the focus of the conventions was missions, not theology. So you saw the mindset that started developing, and, of course, as you walk away from the church, that became more and more uh, problematic. But down, you know, Missions is the work of God, not of man. Therefore, what one believes about God is missions critical, meaning missions is not about us. Missions is about God. So the only message I have is a message that's been given to me. The only word I have is the word of God. The only truth I have is the one from God's word. So I don't have missions unless I've got sound theology. I don't have sound theology unless I've embraced and immersed in the church, which was designed to support it, equip it, and teach it and defend it. And we'll see that in even in the Great Commission that's described in Matthew 28. So, mish, uh, different drifts I wrote down. One, we drift in theology. We drift in priorities. It's hard to maintain proper priorities outside of the church. I put down that ministries in the Genesis are often eager to fulfill the Great Commission. I'll say, and I'll say this when you're drifting. When The idea of drifting is, is what? The idea of drifting is not somebody in a, in a board meeting decided, you know, the church is just bothering us. Let's get away from the church. Or theology is not important. Drifting is the understanding that slowly you, you, you pull away from, unknowingly, really. Many people that can be zealous and they have the heart in the right place and the right desires, but through history, through time, through desires, through instead of overcoming differences, decide to walk away from. It would be the equivalent of you know, you're in a relationship, and instead of solving your problems with your spouse, well, I'm going to walk away from that because I don't want to deal with it. And so walking away slowly and drifting away is this the picture of drift is good because it kind of just you just kind of slowly pull away and you find yourself in a in a far from where you far from where you started. So priorities, you know, what's the priority in missions? Well, as these organizations as, as these organizations drift away from the authority of a local church, different priorities tend to emerge that are the result of a desire to grow and be successful. The problem comes when numbers Results and expansion becomes unintentional priorities. I don't want. To, I, I really want to. I really want you to understand when I'm when I'm describing these things. I'm being gracious here. I'm not suggesting that there's evil intent in what is done. I'm not suggesting that people are going out there and purposefully trying to pull away from the church. 
But what happens is that, like, like with anybody, when you have two people with conflicting priorities, conflicting desires, what you have with an organization is that they're pulling towards, it says here, you know, numbers, results, expansion. You want to expand. You want to grow. What happened with the student volunteer movement was that they wanted to grow exponentially. Well, the way to do that is, is not by narrowing the base but by broadening the base. Well, when you broaden the base, you inevitably means you have a broader pool of definition of what's important, what's not, and theology tends to what? Naturally narrow the base. And so it'd be, it'd be like in a church setting, we could be tempted to, to narrow the base. I mean, I'm sorry, we could be tempted to broaden the base. And that's what many secret churches try to do. Let's, let's broaden the base so we could, we could draw on the maximum amount of people. Missions that can have the same type of reaction, but the end result is drifting away from, from the right kind of priorities. I could give you a number of examples of that, and I'm being pragmatic, or I'm being practical rather in here, uh, and I know it's one area where I want to kind of help you see where – this is where the rubber meets the road. It's one thing to say, sure, the church is important, the church is, is uh, exclusive, the church is designed to maintain, proclaim, and hold truth. Let me show you just briefly today, here is what happens in missions when that's not the case, and kind of give some, some specific put, – put that – put meat to those bones anyway – so here, here's where, where it drifts in the area of priority. As the organization grows, self-preservation becomes an issue in an organization. I mean, it's just a reality of an organization, and I've seen it over and over. You grow, and what starts out as a, as a, as a good-hearted effort to let's, let's go reach the world for Christ, as you grow, what happens? Well, your organization grows. As the organization grows, overhead grows. And what starts out as volunteers now is paid staff. And what starts out as, you know, we're not taking the salary goes into, well, now missionaries fit between, I put down, I think, between 10 to 10 to 20% of missionary support goes to the mission organization. Well, inevitably, that creates conflicts or potential conflicts of interest. I mean, it'd be unrealistic to say that's not the case, and I've seen it happen over and over. Which means what? Which means, you know, it's far too easy. I put the details here. It's far too easy to handle things internally, to you know, avoid a bad name, uh, or out of fear of eroding donor confidence. I mean, if you have a missionary who you go out there, sorry, uh, this missionary is a, is a pedophile. You know, please stop supporting him. Well, it's not going to be that. It's going to be those fifty churches who support him, or those forty churches who support him. That impact goes as a wildfire. Oh, can we trust this organization? Are they overseeing their people? So. Most of that is handled, all of that really is handled internally to avoid bad press, to avoid, you know, uh, so I know, it's, I know it doesn't sound good when I'm saying that, but it's just a reality of what happens when you become an organization that now is these missionaries, you're, no, you're not just serving those missionaries, they're also, you're also dependent on them for your own existence, and that creates those kind of uh, conflicts. Up and down, it's, it's, hard to diffi- it's hard or difficult to discipline missionaries who are the financial livelihood of the same mission organization. And there's noodles of examples to support that, and I've seen that over and over. Institutions are sensitive to the fact that donors want to see growth. I remember being in one church and missions conference, and the pastor says, you know, he's, he's talking to all the missionaries. He says, I, we really want to hear about your struggles, and, uh, you, know, de- you know, tell us what's really going on and what you're really – the missionary says, no, no, you don't. <laughs> he says, you don't. People don't really want to hear about that. They want to hear about how many souls you got saved, how many churches you're starting. You don't think it's putting pressure on people when they've got to be all things to all people and they're reporting? What do you think mission organizations do? They always have to give newsletters that what? Justify why we exist. 
This is where your money is going. It's worth giving to this organization. Inevitably, that feeds that continual need to do that, and it's very hard to to get away from that. I remember being uh, in Malawi and visiting the large missionary compound, which is kind of typical in the African setting. We're having Sunday school in this rundown building. I mean, it was kind of looking rough. I was a little surprised, and next door is this brand-new building. So I was talking to those there and asking, I mean, how does that work? He said, well, it's easy to raise money for that building. You know, you get a newsletter out, hey, we need a new building that's going to help these people. Bam, money comes in, but no one wants to give to maintain property. And it's amazing how that right there is, a, is repeated a thousand times, the same dynamic. And so when you have an organization that, that now depends on, on its existence by, by donations, it's very difficult for them to have the transparency you would want them to have, and it's certainly very difficult for them to have a relationship that's healthy with the churches because they want to build confidence with the churches. They want to break that confidence. So th- that kind of dynamic is daily and is over and over though those kind of of, um, of struggles and, and tension that that rises there put down number four ecclesiological uh, drift drifting away from the church obviously missions and i'll say this missional problems are the fruit of poor ecclesiology a poor understand what it is a church it amazes me still that you're going to have someone go overseas and church plant i mean that means you're committed to the church Right? I mean, this is, we're about the church. We're going to plant a church. We're going to uh, train elders, train uh, deacons. We're going to, and yet you've got no, you don't have that back home. And so I, I, will, I will say this. We can flip in the other direction. I've heard this said too. Well, all, we don't need to teach missions. We only need to teach ecclesiology. I think that's an oversimplification and an overreaction to the problem. It'd be a little bit simplistic to say we don't have to teach missions. Well, there are certain aspects of missions that would be helpful to train young men in, in terms of whether it be language acquisition or different challenges you're going to face overseas that you wouldn't face necessarily at home. Understanding these different aspects of missions, it would be healthy. But by and large, as you drift from the church and you, the church is not in the central position that it should be, missional problems come from this poor understanding of the role of the church. So I'll put down a few thoughts here in relation to that. I mean, if you read Sam Metcalf, gets my blood boiling the way he writes, but you could read him if you get bored about things. He, he, you know, he, he rebukes the church for holding back on releasing you know, qualified people, and he basically he has a lot of confusion over what it means to be an apostle, big A apostle, versus apostle small a, which in Scripture we'll see a little bit later is a messenger of the church. An apostle small a is a messenger of the church, but he treats it as like there's a stool, some, some form of super calling above the church. And so he, he obviously is just indicative of some of the problems. I put down the, fra- the faulty premise on which this rationale is built presupposes the church is, op- is optional. I mean, those who, who drift from the church presupposes that the church is good to have the church, but it's, it's optional. When you start seeing something as not being optional, then you start finding solutions to make it work, and you ask yourself, how is this possible? So one of the reasons why discussing even in the missional aspect for us why am i why do i want to do this one thing is for us to process okay the the church is not optional so if someone's going to be sent overseas i've got to know who's their church is what what's that church context going to be uh if they don't have that they need to go find it and they need to go develop that they need to grow in that that's not it's not optional for me it's okay okay oh i get it you had a bad experience and you know no pastor so you left there and you just got no okay i get it no, there's no I get it. You have to go fix that. 
You have to go find a church that you can be a part of, that they can affirm you, and you have to take the time to do that. Uh, so, but now poor ecclesiology is seen in the irony that many missionaries have distanced themselves from the church back home while purposing to establish churches on distant lands. That's a common model. I mean, they're, they're planting churches overseas and, and emphasizing to the people that when you, that's the first thing you do when you, you go, you share the gospel, you baptize and teach. And in the Great Commission, it says baptize, teach, go back to back, they're hand in hand, right? So baptizing is joining and being a part of a body of Christ, a visible body of Christ. Then the teaching takes place in that context. But all that is so important on the field. And here back home, it becomes so so loose and so we become so indifferent to it for, for whatever reason. So the irony of that and what that causes. I put down two poor ecclesiology manifests itself in conflicted agendas on the field between what an agency desires to accomplish and the needs and desires of an established indigenous church. So what you see systematically in missions is a mission organization, what do they do? Well, they might help purchase a building. I've had many conversations, and this is just my limited experience, my limited field, many conversations with agencies. Well, we don't want to turn that building over to them because, you know, we're afraid they go, they're going to go progressive. You know, they might start allowing women to wear skirts in the choir, I mean, to wear, to wear pants in the choir, or they might, I mean, it's like, but the, 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 what was concerning is the review of the church. Here's a church, 20 years they've worked on establishing with elders and leaders, but they're afraid to relinquish authority because money is authority. So the mission organization is afraid to, relinquish, to release that so they don't become so independent that we lose control of them. Now, listen, I understand there's logistics behind some of these things, and their experiences tell them, well, if we do that, and they go rogue and they don't count. But ultimately, there's a problem with their own ecclesiology where you're establishing works and you're training men and you're training elders, and then you won't let them be autonomous and you won't let them be indigenous because you still want to control. Americans have this strange relationship with money. We, we use money to control things. We think we pay, we have a decision to make in a process. So we're paying for it, therefore we should have a say. And mission agencies almost systematically function that way. I've rarely seen it not function that way. And they're couched under being good stewards of the money. And I, and I understand all that, but at the heart of it is a poor understanding of what the church is designed to be and to do. So... I put down some of these things, and then even on the field, objectives. I've had many conversations with French pastors. It, it, it astonished me that we had a survey of uh, independent works in France, French pastors. They said, what's your number one hurdle in France? You know what they answered? American missions. Like, really? That's your number one problem? But you know what they saw in that? They saw that American missions is holding them back from being the churches they want to be. Now, from American perspective, you know, we want to maintain the purity of our mission board has this obligation, this responsibility. And that conflict of interest is constant. It's constant. A good friend of mine, French pastor, he, he finally had to leave. He, they, he was there pastoring 12 years in this church, and he thought they were paying rent towards owning the house. And finally, when the other missionary was going to leave, and he's – he says, well, no, you've been paying rent. You've been paying a mortgage, but I'll sell you the building if you want. I'll sell it to the church if you want to. He says, I mean, it's like you're talking about hard feelings between American missionary and a French church. They thought they were paying a mortgage on a church, and they're finding out that, oh, no, you're just paying rent. This still belongs to the mission. 
but we'll sell it to the to the church. Wow. Don't think those things are abnormal. Why? Because once once the church a misunderstanding of the role of the church and the indigenous nature of the church a mission organization has difficulty in, in releasing some of that. Up and down methodo- methodological drift. I probably should make shorter words. I'm going to get all tongue tied in all these long words. We talk about this in our new members' um, orientation, right? Theology and methods go hand in hand. And one can, only, one can and will impact the other. I'll put a couple examples here that are pretty basic, right? But one's biblical understanding of Calvinism versus Arminian theology, whatever it is, will impact evangelistic methodologies. In other words, your theology will impact your methodology on the field. Uh, so, yeah, if you've got somebody that's got, that's got this, had a coworker, great guy, energetic. He had this strong conviction that, you know, every opportunity he had to convince someone of their need for the gospel. He is a lot more Armenian in, in his approach to things, for sure. And he, he uses you know, the convincing argument for the gospel. Well, he had been gone on furlough, and for a year, when he came back, I said, listen, because he's all excited, he's got new families in church, he wants to visit with them. And I told him, now, you're getting ready to go see this couple, and they're friends of ours. We get to know them now, and it says, just remember, I'm going to see them again. Offending him, I guess I understand why now. But what I was trying to tell him is that you know, for him, it's always this one shot. You know, because if they walk away and they get killed and something happens, the blood's on me, and I should. It's like there's no concept of God's sovereign timing and what He's doing. And there's no concept of letting the Spirit is the Spirit drawing them yet? Are you sense that yet? Are you just trying to? And he had no sense of that. And because of that, we were at odds sometimes as how to approach a need. So theology and methodology go hand in hand. So to, to, to give a pass on theology is going to impact then what you agree upon when it comes to how you should approach and methods you should use in the ministry. Of course, women's role is a big one as well. It's going to be a big part of that. So a couple of quotes that are helpful I thought were, were significant. Wolf describes it this way, all major methodological decisions have implications for the whole of the theological edifice, and inversely, all major theological decisions shape theological methods. So methods and theology go hand in hand. Sound methods, sound theology go, go hand in hand. Uh, important to, to keep that in, in, in truth. So as a, as a church is called to be that upholder of truth, it's going to impact how you approach missions. One of the last chapters I, I wrote here on sovereign missions and strategic missions, sovereign missions, is one that's just really encouraged my heart because it goes against the flow of 90% of mission books who try to convince you and try to guilt you into missions. And if you don't hurry up and get out there, man, lost, like God's just waiting for you to get there. You know, you do your part, God does his part, and the two of you come together in agreement. But if you don't do your part, well, God's sitting there waiting for you. It's like, wow. It's like how do you understand sovereign missions is, is, is encouraging, and that's one of the later parts of our, of our study. So I know that... History and Ben will agree with me. History is important so that we don't repeat it. We also understand the mistakes we made, and we also understand why we get to the point where we do. And so I just encourage when it comes to missions that every time the missions has distanced itself from the local church is drifted. Mm-hmm. 10, 20, 30, 40 years later, and now organizations that at one time were at the heartbeat of the church now become 
self-sufficient. They use the church for the church is only a means to an end, whatever their, their agenda is, and their purposes are. And it, it really um, causes the problems that I've, I've listed here. So important to keep, keep church and missions at the heart of it. Last section here is the one on truth proclaimed by the church. And we'll end on, on this segment here. We've got 10 minutes to do so this evening. What we see, in, as you read through, and we've read through 1 Timothy 3, so I'm at uh, point E, truth proclaimed by the church. Two things I want to point out here. One, not only have we been given as a church, we've laid that foundation, the responsibility to defend the truth, we've been given the responsibility to proclaim the truth. One thing we point out here is that tr- the proclamation of truth is not separate from shepherding the flock. Baptized teach go hand in hand. It wasn't like, okay, well, you're going to uh, proclaim the gospel over here, but totally detached from a shepherding heart. Paul has a proclamation with a shepherding heart. So there's a problem when we separate those two pieces. We have this mass, you know, this big evangelist has no shepherding desire over here, but those two pieces really are intended to work hand in hand, and Caldwell describes that well in his book. So... As you walk through the Apostle Paul, he says what? In the first part of the, the first paragraph here in point E, he says in, first, in 2 Timothy 1, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm sorry, and an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I believe. I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day that which has been entrusted to me. So first of all, guarding the deposit does not mean keeping it to ourselves, but rather faithfully proclaiming and committing the truth to others. We've been given that truth, and that's, that's one of the challenges we have as American church. It's one of the challenges Tim Lake Baptist Church has. We've been given a lot of truth. But with that truth has been given the task of proclaiming it, not hoarding it, not preserving it. We're not in a safeguard tower where we, we just guard it. We're there to proclaim it and preserve it, yes, from error, but then go and preach the word. And we see this in the second part in chapter 4. After describing the church as being a pillar of truth, he says why? He says, as Paul's words, I, I like it because he says, uh, second paragraph here in that first point, as if Paul's words reach their crescendo, he gives the church his final charge. He says what? I charge you in the presence of God, preach the word and be ready in season and out of season and reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and, and teaching. The church has been given the task of proclaiming the truth. Yes, we've been given the task to preserve it, guard it, and gives us all the tools to do that. Now it gives us the tools to proclaim it. In missions today, I, I doubt that I doubt that people would say, well, the proclamation of truth is not essential, but it is easy to think that, well, first we must do this or first we must do that. Now, I'm not advocating that there's not relationships that need to be built. What I'm suggesting is that we must not forget that ultimately what grows the church is a proclamation of truth. It's what grows the church. Uh, it's not every other goodwill effort to make people feel good or to reach a community and meet needs. All those are important and have their role, absolutely. But the proclamation of truth is what grows the church. So in the second, in the second point listed here, I like what he says. Richard Caldwell says this. He challenges the concept that preaching and shepherding are two separate responsibilities. He says that. He said, the power of the preacher flows from the heart, mindset, and focus of a shepherd. That's the admonition given to who? To Peter, right? Go feed my flock. And then he preaches with power at Acts chapter 3, and then at Acts chapter 4, we see him preaching with power, but he is the what? He's the heart of a shepherd. Go feed my 
my flock. The power of the preacher comes from that heart of a of a shepherd. Uh, Samuel, I let you read his last name, Volbita, says the preaching must have a pastoral quality about it. The point being made is that preaching is not just about dispensing truth; it is about loving God, His church, caring for souls. Shepherding is the aim of preaching. All right. So bring back down the missions. What, how, how significant is that in missions as it relates to the church? If you could send, a, you could send a, what we call an evangelist out there, Street preaching. That would be woefully inadequate in and of itself. I'm not suggesting that a place for evangelism. What I'm saying is that outside of the church, understanding that the proclamation of truth is coupled with the shepherding heart, it means what? It means you have to have the church to do that. You have to have the church to do that. The church is the shepherding extension of the gospel. The church is, and the preacher is a man with a shepherding heart. So you can't just have random people, oh, I want to be an evangelist. I want to preach the gospel. But there's no connection to the church. How's that possible? Where's the shepherding component come from? Where is that, even in, in the Great Commission, why are those two, those two merged where the proclamation of truth is merged with the, with the beauty of the church? So you go through scripture, and I, I put different references here you could look at shows how preaching and church growth go hand in hand. Preaching should be at the heart of any attempt to grow the church. This also will come back a little bit later on. When we look at you know, a healthy missionary, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, if a missionary is going to have the responsibility, if he's going to play the role of an elder, he needs to be equipped. He needs to be equipped to proclaim the truth. Because... The, the, the shepherding component, he needs to not only know his word, be able to proclaim the word accurately and uh, be, be true to the word and then have a, a shepherding component to it and have those, those elder qualities about him. Preaching should be at the heart of any attempt to grow the church. David Ebby, a missionary to Uganda, laments the fact that biblical missions replaced Biblical preaching with a focus on sociological techniques. What he describes in, in Africa, what he's seen is that missions that at the heart was driven by preaching is now driven by social agendas, uh, pragmatism, methodologies, programs. And he says, you know, he, said, he speaks strongly in his context that there can be no church growth without preaching. The ministry of the word, I put this paragraph down, the ministry of the word is the main weapon in the spiritual arsenal. The only seed for church planning, the primary tool for church building, and the principal strategy in the God's plan to disciple the nations. No preaching, no church. No proclamation, no church growth. Preaching is the heart, the blood, the whole secular system of church life and church growth. There is a, a direct causation between preaching and church growth. Biblically, you, go, you walk through Acts. My alarm. Church, uh, there's a direct causation between preaching and church growth. You go through the book of Acts, and the church spread through the proclamation and the teaching of God's word. 
So what am I looking for in missions? Well, yes, maybe they're going to go dig wells, help them get water. Yes, maybe they're going to help them get clothing because they can't get clothes. Maybe they can't get a good education, so we're going to help them get a good education. Maybe they're poor and they can't. They need to be fed, so we're going to help them find food. But if I'm not proclaiming the word, I'm not going to grow the church. Amen. I have to understand where is church growth in this process. And if I have someone who's not a qualified elder for whatever reason, it could be a it could be a young lady, it could be a young man, but they're not qualified elders, then they're going to still go team up with someone who's in that capacity where they're feeding the church. And they're contributing to growing the church, and they're supporting the proclamation and teaching of God's word. So I, I give you different texts here that kind of give you give you that and walk through. Um, and yes, you gain a hearing absolutely. Of course, you you know you you gain a hearing. You love people, but there are many many times where I I had the opportunity to share the gospel in the first contact with somebody because I knew that was the right time for it. I didn't sit there and think, well, you know, first year we just get to know them. We're just going to be good neighbors for first year. Jane and I, what we did a lot of times, just in our natural way of interacting with people, we just included the gospel natural in what we were saying. Because what happens when you evangelize, if you don't do that, a year later you're thinking, okay, I've been here a year now. Now I'm ready to be, I'm going to know, I'm going to speak the truth now. No, what you find out is they don't know you that way and they don't relate to you that way. <laughs> yeah, shot into, into life. So what we've, what we've always done is just speak naturally about the faith as if it's just part of who we are. Even if they didn't always understand. And sometimes I, I would see somebody open up their eyes like, wow, you, you're, off, you're off out there. You, know, you, you, must been, you must believe in aliens too while you're at it. You know, I, I saw that look sometimes, but at least then when the opportunity came to sit down and share the gospel with clarity, it was there. And so, yeah, I'm not suggesting that you, you don't uh, reach and, and love people and build relationships with people. But I'm, and if they're, if they're hungry, you feed them, absolutely. But the proclamation of the gospel is what's going to grow the church, and that must be part of our MO as we're trying to do the work of the gospel in, in a foreign field. No lasting church growth or church expansion has taken place without the power of preaching. From the Reformation to revivals to missionary endeavors, History underscores a proclamation of the word as spearheading entire entire movements. And that's still true today. Power transformation. That's why baptisms are so special, right? Power transformation of the gospel. That's still what we should be proclaiming. Unashamedly, the foolishness of the gospel. I know it doesn't make sense to them. Oh, but they've got, you know, they believe in many gods. And they, listen, go right to it. You know that God's already planted a witness in their heart. They know, they know that the French are so... The French are stuck up, so basically, you know, for the French, for the French person, you know, they're beyond religion. If you know what I mean, they're, they've, they're, they've evolved beyond religion. It doesn't matter, because you know in their heart, when they go to bed at night, they're still looking up thinking, why is my life, what's the purpose of my life? Because God still plays that in their heart. You know, they're still struggling with, uh, with unfairness, with injustice and right and wrong and eternity. And the moment they grieve... Our neighbor came crying, and they're unbelieving friends, but they came crying. Why? Because uh, a daughter was in a car accident or a close, maybe it was a niece, but come over, and they just knew. We don't know enough about the gospel, but we know you know the gospel, and clearly you must have contact with God, so can you please pray? It's, it's, it's amazing how, how that works.
put down two, preaching the gospel, preaching and missions, rather. We see that in Paul's work, in missional work, evangelism, and shepherding need go hand in hand. Uh, so just the necessity that um, the proclamation of truth, you know, I can't tell you how many times young missionaries would come to me on the field and ask me the same question. What works? What works? I'm thinking, dude, I've been here long enough. Nothing works, I told you. <laughs> he was like, oh, man, I was hoping that, you know, a veteran guy who's a clearly, you know, you got a church, you, you can tell me what works. Nothing works. It's just love the people, proclaim truth, preach the gospel, Amen. And let the Lord do his work and be faithful in doing that. Uh, so I put down, this is for young people here. So if you're, if you're under 30, this is for you. Page 20. <laughs> under 30 or over 80, right? I love this one quote from E.B. He, he missions in Uganda, right? Page 27. Look at says top page 27. Evangelistic zeal alone can be a Trojan horse of autonomy, pride, and self-dependence. I've seen a lot of young people very zealous about the gospel hit a lot of other things that were not what needed to be. So zealous for the gospel alone, don't be impressed with that unless it's coupled with humility, submission, Accountability to the church. If it's not coupled with that, you've got a problem on your hands. And he, he points that out. I thought it was fine, interesting the way he describes that from his own experience anyway. I put down the preaching of the word crosses cultural divides. We often talk about the, 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 the challenges overseas. And uh, I shared this last week. Pastor Ali wasn't here when I shared this. But how even in his early advice to me, you know, he didn't know France, didn't know the French. But he knew that people's needs were the same in every culture. And the gospel is the answer in every culture. And uh, it doesn't matter if they come from a Hindu, Buddhist background, and, or if they come from an atheist background, or what doesn't matter. The power of the gospel is still the answer, and it's still what is needed to transform life. Put quote, uh, end with uh, Spurgeon's quote here. Preach the gospel, and the gates of hell shake. Preach the gospel, prodigal sons return. Preach the gospel to every creature. It is the master's power to everyone who, who believes. Man, the church has been given that. And, and next week we'll start with the, the, the church as the agent of the Great Commission and what that looks like. I love the, the Great Commission and how he describes it there and the role of the church in the matter. But as we finish this chapter, the beauty of the church, the task that's been given to you and I to hold on to the truth, to preserve it, to guard it, be in the word, know the word, stay the word, and put yourself into sound teaching. And from there, we have the beauty of, and, and the blessing of proclaiming the word, and that's where it take, takes us to the great commission that we, will see, that we will see next week. Very well. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I, I know that we're unworthy vessels. Lord, the rocks will cry out. Angels can sing. You've chosen the frailty of man to take the beauty of the gospel and take it to the uttermost parts of the earth. May we take that task at hand, Lord. May we see that you've given the church the responsibility 
to hold and preserve and guard and then go and proclaim. May we have the zeal and passion of, of taking the gospel that's been given to us and proclaim it to the uttermost parts of the earth. We thank you for our time this evening, Lord. Thank you for the beauty of services this morning and the Lord's Supper and then the beauty of these testimonies tonight and baptism, Lord. What a blessed day it has been.